Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Nick Triplo. Welcome to the show. Hi, yeah. I was like, it's, it's, it's a repeat thing, this, where I have a bit of preamble, and then I go, hello again on the podcast, like, like as if we're just meeting. <laughs> but uh, I understand that's not what we're doing, and the audience often does, and I let them in on the magic. Um, you've wrote a fantastic book called Getting Carter, Ted Lewis and the Birth of Brit Noir which I thoroughly enjoyed um, and learned a ton at the same time, which is always always a good one. Um, before we go into the detail or, or veer off into subjects relating to film and and, 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 what, and its relationship to get Carter, um, do you want to give like a brief synopsis of how you would describe, I mean, I know that it's self-explanatory in the, in the, in the title, but if you don't know who Ted Lewis is, it kind of, it's a, it could be meaningless. So do you want to give a brief synopsis to what getting Carter is for you? Yeah, I mean, if I if I just sort of paint you a picture, I, I sort of wrote crime novels, or wrote a crime novel and was sort of writing other stuff and on that circuit for a mm. while. And I moved to Barton and Humber 20 years ago and discovered that this guy, Ted Lewis, who wrote a novel in 1970 called Jack's Return Home that was then adapted as Get Carter, he lived here. He lived in this town that I've moved to, and nobody knew anything about him. There was no blue plaque. There was no recognition. There was no nothing. I was doing some sort of social history research for another project. Yeah, and I kept coming up against these people of a kind of certain generation who said, "Oh, you want to write about that Ted Lewis? You know, he wrote that film that Michael Caine was in." And so, so it was. Partly an accident, but it was partly the fact that when I started doing little events and stuff, I'd, do, I'd try this little um, little game with the audience. Just said, "Has anybody heard of Get Carter?" Because you've got all these hands that go up, and then I'd ask, "Has anybody heard of Ted Lewis?" And usually, I'd be lucky if there was one, and that had been my mate who I'd gone along with. And um, so he just wasn't known. And I just thought that's that's kind of that's not right. You know, that's kind of criminal in its own in its own way. This guy who'd been um, quite a predominant writer in his in his time had fallen off the radar pretty much. Yeah, I don't you're making me not feel so bad now, because that's exactly I exactly was that member of the audience who didn't know who you were talking about. Yeah, and and it and it's I mean I suppose the the question is how does that happen? You know how how does somebody who has a a career a reputation does things you know writes stuff writes for TV writes for film writes novels etc etc how, how do they fall off the radar how do they become somebody who nobody knows when the film that they're probably most famous for it, it's it's become I'm not going to use the word iconic because it doesn't really apply, but it is one of those films that clearly, you know, it's it's part of our shared national culture. That film, those images, some of those lines, which are Lewis's lines. Um, you know, how does the writer just just disappear in that way? Jack. You shouldn't have shown the film to Frank. I had to. It was the only way I could get at them. Well, you shouldn't have. 
Your brother was going to the police. You shit. You didn't have the guts to do it yourself, did you? They killed me. They killed my brother. He's dead. I didn't mean to do it. How would you have liked it? If that had been your daughter being poked in that film. What would you have done then? Slags like your Sandra can get away with it, can't they? The Doreens of this world can't, can they? So there was a kind of you know, partly an intrigue, partly you know a bit of a detective story in its own right once I got into it, and partly some sort of early discoveries that just knocked me off my feet, such as the fact that he'd been like a the animation cleanup supervisor on the Beatles' Yellow Submarine. So suddenly you've gone from all right, so we've got Get Carter, we've got Yellow Submarine. Oh, right, and then I find out that he wrote for Doctor Who. Yeah, but it was never actually it was never actually used. And we can come on to that later if you want. So you've got this guy who's this kind of zeitgeist hopping through, you know, every two or three years. He's involved in a project that is, you know, is still relevant to us now as you know, either readers or or, or watchers of film or just people who appreciate, you know, the last fifty years of. Pop culture. Reading your book, um, what I'm able to see is is a is clearly a, a man that wants it because obviously he wants to get out of where he where you know he's, he's the art school escape from yeah. from the the, the 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 working class path to to nothing as it were, um, which I can fully understand. You know, I grew up in a small town ten miles north of Manchester, and it was you know you spend most of your life from fourteen wondering when can you get out. Kind of yeah. thing, <clears throat> but when he when he gets out and he's and, and when he finally gets into London, it's interesting how he 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 lives outside of London in like in the sticks. Is sort of when he's reached that point where he you you could argue he's got cannon behind him and he's he's working on it. His his leg his legacy is ongoing. It, it it wasn't like part of any sort of he wasn't part of any set, was he? It didn't it didn't appear to be from from the story you, you tell of his life. No, I mean, he, he finally made it to London in 1961. Hmm. He started out working in advertising, um, doing copywriting and then sort of running accounts and stuff. Um, but his ambition was to always be involved in film. Hmm. And for, you know, for a little town, Barton, and it is a little town, and it was even smaller then before the Humber Bridge like, joined this to the rest of the planet. Yeah. Um, it was really quite cut off and quite isolated. But it had two cinemas. And he'd grown up as a kid, as a complete cinephile. And, you know, you'd get a change of program in the middle of the week. And he'd go and watch each program change at each cinema every week, religiously. And he'd sit there and watch the film. And he'd watch until the credits had finished rolling. And he would be, and he memorized the credits. He would be, he wanted to know what that was about. How did that work? How did he get to make the film? 
how did you, you know, how did you get to tell those stories? So when he came to London, that was the ambition. That was always the ambition. Mm. Was that was to was to make film, um, and he used what he had in terms of his animation skills. Started off working on um, the Lone Ranger cartoon mm. as a background artist. When the factories first began to send their pall of smoke over the city, and farmlands of the east offered only the barest living. Americans turned their faces toward the West. They poured into the new territory by the thousands, fording the mighty rivers, climbing the mountains, fighting Indians and outlaws, praying, toiling, dying. It was a hard land, a hostile land. Only the strong survived. A new American breed, the pioneer. In this forge, upon this anvil, was hammered out a man who became a legend. A daring and resourceful man who hated thievery and oppression. His face masked. His true name unknown. With his faithful Indian companion at his side, he thundered across the west on his great white stallion, appearing out of nowhere to strike down injustice and outlawry. And then, vanishing as mysteriously as he came. His sign, a silver bullet. His name, the Lone Ranger. And basically, that when the submarine happened, that whole crew, pretty much every animator who, who was then looking for work, kind of got sucked into that production because it was it was like partly because there was money there to begin with yeah partly because the timeline was ridiculous to get it finished and it was the Beatles and, <laughs> and it was the Beatles and you yeah. know we didn't want to want to take that on and the fact that you, you had some of the best people in the business people who were kind of groundbreaking in terms of you know that the design but then you sort of speak to them about some of that stuff and it's like it was really difficult to animate because it was flat. Do you? Do you it, I mean, do you think then that one one of the sliding doors in 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 the book is is um is is the realization that Ted wanted to would have wanted to write the script for Get Carter, but in hindsight, Mike and and uh, Michael uh, kind of just didn't think to ask him because he never said what 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 do you what do you think happened there. That's like a, that's that seems a big sliding door moment in terms of that that idea of him becoming yeah. notorious with this kind of with the film that make that, that's got his name on it and not becoming notorious for having his name on it. The, the, one of the issues is that if if I sort of when you look at the credits to get Carter, hmm. Ted Lewis is based on the novel by Ted Lewis at the hmm. beginning. Mm-hmm. That's it. When you do a side-by-side reading of the script to Lewis's novel, you you can see that there are certain scenes where Mike Hodges has almost kind of beat for beat taken Lewis's scene and dropped it in to the script. Yeah, because he was a, a, a that kind of immersed in cinema, 
Ted wrote quite cinematically, which is one of the things that, you know, and sex is writing apart. But when it came to the point at which Michael Klinger had got the money from MGM to make a British gangster film, mm. he'd got possibly the biggest star, certainly in this country, possibly the world, sure. to play the lead. And then he'd got a debut feature film director to adapt and direct it. If you look at the kind of risk to retailer ratio on that, what you couldn't afford to do was then to bring in a novice screenwriter. Of course, yeah. I forgot you'd said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think as much as I know Ted would desperately have wanted to have written the script, it would have been a very different script than anybody who's ever tried to adapt their own prose will probably tell you, you know, yeah. unless you're able to completely take yourself out of it as a writer, it's, it's a really hard thing to do. And I think some of the choices that Mike Hodges made, you know, Ted, Ted would never have made in a hundred years. Um, and they were, I think, you know, history shows us they were the right choices, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. For example, you know, it works. It's brilliant. But it, I mean, I was surprised to to, to learn that that the Iraq that when that book was published and became the film, that that book in of itself was like the arrival of British noir. So there wasn't there wasn't really a history. It was there was obviously noir that came out of America, which you know the whole the whole Gumshoe Chandler, Dashiell yeah. Hammett, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So there wasn't before Ted Lewis really there wasn't that kind of writing coming out of Britain. No, I mean there, there wasn't really a tradition of it. Hmm. I mean, it, that's not to say there weren't <coughs> novels that that had every noir characteristic going, and there were. Um, Gerald Kirsch's The Night in the City, hmm. which was filmed. Um, Grand Green's Brighton Rock. Yes, yeah, these yeah. Those, these are kind of noir, noir novels that were were written about, you know, th- those kind of characters. Um, James Curtis's um, They Drive by Night. Another one, they're, they're great novels, but they were kind of the, the 30s and 40s, and you know, it didn't it didn't develop into a a kind of a more um, formulated tradition in the in the way that it did in France and the way that it did in, in America. In America, it's a kind of you know, it's outlaw fiction, it's it's pulp novels, mm. it's um, those kind of you know, really tough characters and taking on um, impossible odds and losing nine times out of ten. Mm. In France, it's, it's, uh, it has, I think it takes on a more socio-political kind of aspect of it um, uh, with uh, writers like Machete who kind of used it to, to pursue like a socialist agenda in, in crime fiction. But it hadn't really, it didn't, it didn't have an equal in this country until Lewis wrote Jack's return home stroke Jack Carter, mm. at which point that fusion between the British social realism with all of those details, all of that kind of tawdry, that non-metropolitan small town scunthorpe matches itself with hard-boiled, tough, uncompromising, violent, sexy, you know, down and dirty crime fiction, noir fiction, 
in such a way that you simply can't see the joy. It's, it becomes a, another thing in, mm. in and of itself. Yeah, because I mean, I, I I must admit, I even though I'm I'm reading I'm reading your book, it wasn't until it got mentioned I completely forgot about um, the influence on Dead Man's Shoes, for example, Shane Meadows, yeah. which obviously there's a filmmaker who who prides himself on keeping it local in terms of the characters and the kind of stories he wants to tell. He's not he's never been interested in the the big London you know the big London story or whatever. He's always been about finding yeah. the characters that he sees. In places he's familiar with. I mean, I think I think that that sort of outsider narrative. You know, the the guy who goes home to set 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 something straight. You mm. know, that that's that's not a new story, but but to do it in a place, um, he, he does it in. Um, I think Dead Man's Shoes is, is it set in Utoxeter in, in something North like yeah, it's in one of those East Midlands yeah. market towns. Yeah. yeah, and and Lewis was. Writing about Scunthorpe, you know, in North Lincolnshire, it's a steel town. You know, most people probably haven't been there, and it's you know been the butt of many a joke. But you know, it's an edgy little town. It was a steel town where everybody works in the steel industry. Friday night you got paid. Friday night, you know, by Monday morning you had none of it left. And so you had the loan sharks in the steelworks. And that's how Jack Carter started out as an enforcer for um, a, a loan shark in the Scunthorpe Steelworks. Mm. So you've got this kind of like the, um, you know, perhaps in the same way that David Simon chose Baltimore, not New York for the wire. Yeah. You know, Ted sort of found a way to make Scunthorpe the kind of the best possible place to set a story, uh, you know, about a guy coming back from London to take revenge for the murder of his brother and possibly the exploit, you know, sexual exploitation of his daughter. I mean, that, that's, I mean, the, that part of the story and certainly in the beginning of the film, Get Carter, where you've got the, the great and the good watching the 16 mil camera, yeah. dirty films as it were with the, which turns out to be obviously underage, underage actors and stuff. <clears throat> It's interesting for him to pick that up, given forty years later that was all the news that the that the great and the good were doing. Yeah. You know, there was elements of the great and the good as we saw them who were involved in this kind of exploitation and abuse, and yet it was just like um, a kind of almost like in the film. Certainly, I don't. I've not read the book yet, but in the in the films, it's like it's a it's it's obviously coming from somewhere that this is happening, but it's not something that everyone was seemingly conscious of for four decades that. This that this kind of dirty undercurrent existed in Britain, <clears throat> but I think you, you, when you, I mean, Lewis worked in Soho right throughout the late sixties. Mm. Um, the film's producer was Michael Klinger. Michael Klinger was sort of Soho born and bred. Yeah, um, and he owned um, review clubs, review bars in Soho, and he owned what were loosely termed continental cinemas. Um, and so he knew that world and he knew it well enough to know, you know, to to kind of guide Mike Hodges in how to make that look the way it should look. Mm. And and give, given what, what got you started, this idea of um, no, no one's really heard of Ted Lewis and that was kind of the thing that got you looking, then you start to find out all these great popular cultural touchstones in it. What for you was the 
the biggest surprise in your sort of uncovering of uh, the Ted Lewis story? I think that given what he did to himself, hmm. that he managed to produce as much as he did, given the fact that he was probably almost, almost certainly an alcoholic for the last 10 years of his life, yeah. that the writing that he managed to produce in that time was as, as, as good as it was. And you, you kind of go back and, and look at um, like his final novel, GBH, and it's it's probably one of the, the greatest British. I was going to say crime novels, but it might I might even stretch that and say the, like the, one of the greatest British post-war novels. Wow! Based on the fact that it it goes to places that I haven't. Well, put it this way: there's a there's a scene in there, and there's a there's a build-up of tension in that novel, mm. and when it's released, it's it floored me the first two or three times that I read it that he actually written what he'd written um, and i can't really go into it and i wouldn't do it because a it's a spoiler and and b it's um it's graphic okay no no i wouldn't i was going to say don't i'll uh, i'll i'll wait for that displeasure when i get there but i think you know in terms of what surprised me you know he came from that generation that um you know they were drinkers he was a drinker he didn't do i don't think he did a lot of drugs and that's part of the thing you're a submarine most of the guys were of his generation and they weren't they weren't dropping acid, they weren't, you know, doing magic mushrooms. They were going to the pub having three pints at lunchtime and going back and doing, you know, animation cells. I'm old enough, but not quite old enough to 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 have experienced liquid lunches. Like I started work in the late eighties and you would go out for two or three pints in the afternoon. I then lost my job to the Great Recession of the early 90s and then hid away in university for three years. And when I come out by 94, it was over. There was The liquid lunch thing was a real note. I mean, there was obviously a a legacy of it that was just dying out. But essentially, you as a new employee, that that didn't... And it was very very vivid in the book. And I must admit that as I'm reading and discovering Ted Lewis's life and and wondering, and obviously having not read his work, thinking I need to get onto this and stuff, and not knowing what the end was, I mean, it, it becomes it becomes obviously apparent almost like a third of the way in that this isn't going to end very well. But it didn't stop me hoping while I was reading. It's funny that, you know, the way you've written it, it's like it didn't stop me hoping that there was going to be something, you know, the next move was going to be the one that will lift him up. And it was, you know, it's yeah. sad that, it, you know, we get to GBH and the the the, the claim is, is happening, but it's kind of so poorly handled as a release. It doesn't yeah. matter. Because if nobody can buy it, then it didn't. It didn't happen. And then there is that. There's a kind of local press interview that mm. that he did about the same time as GBH was being published. And you know, he thought it was his best work. Yeah. But all they wanted to talk about was get cast. And you know, it 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 is that thing that, that you know he he, did, he spent the rest of his life either chasing that kind of recognition. That, that came with it or, or or kind of politely answering questions about Get Carson when he had another book to publish. Now, you know, he's not the only writer who that's happened to. Of course. And he's not the only writer to have had drink problems by a, a long way. But I think in terms of you, you kind of look at the arc of his life and how, you know, 
things sort of fell apart for him. I, you know, I, I think yes, it's it's really it's sad, it's awful. Mm. But he achieved a huge amount in that time. It's just that he wasn't recognised for it in his own time. Especially when you when you 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 think of people like David Peace and stuff talk, praising him now mm. about how great his work is and how well respected David is. You know, beyond noir fiction in a way, isn't he? I mean, his work's been on national yeah, yeah. television. People know his work. Obviously, the Damned United was a, was a huge cinematic hit as well as a as a literary hit as well. It does. It, it is. It is tinged with sadness. The the, the story of Ted Lewis, not not just because of his own self destruction, but for that reason that that he never got yeah. to feel the appreciation beyond the fact that a dead famous bloke who was <laughs> got to play the lead in his film and that helped. And it was done well, and it and you know the, a, a promising director turned out to be a very good director. So therefore, the film was excellent. What do you think it was from from a from a, from your understanding and your appreciation of of noir, and for for a, for a writer listening into this conversation, what do you think writers could learn from how Ted wrote about the places that he set his and the characters he drew on for, that, that made it such good British noir. <clears throat> Um, I think what he did was, I mean, there is a truth to it. Hmm. There is an honesty to it. Um, I think there's a, there's a kind of, there's a, a fabric to the landscape in this part of the world where you've got the Humber River that kind of divides Yorkshire from Lincolnshire. Hmm. You've got, an industry that you know that at the time he was writing was probably you know still thriving in terms of the steel industry on this side of the river, and I think what he was able to do was to was to take those kind of noir characters, as in the the the, the failures, the the people who are you know have an off have a, a moral centre that sort of movable depending on what they need at any given time and to, to write those characters into a place that's recognizable mm. and i think if you if, if you're kind of writing something i mean it, it, it has to feel real doesn't it it has to there's that sort of old adage that you know the 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 setting becomes a character in its own right yeah he certainly did that with, with get carter and again with gbh and arguably with, with a couple of the other novels as well um where they are absolutely integral, they are part of the conflict. They are the thing that that, as much as the the obstacles that are in the way of, you know, Jack Carter as an antihero as a protagonist, the the landscape and his knowledge of it and how it fails him in, in terms of you know the, the the way the drama plays out. And it's knowing your landscape well enough to know how, how you can use it to your advantage as a writer yeah. and to obviously to the disadvantage of the protagonist. Is there a distinct difference in your mind? I mean, this is me treating you as an expert, so tell me to, I'm, I'm asking you something that's not so much to answer like, but is there something distinctively different about what you would class as British noir compared to the American noir stuff? In literature, that is, and obviously not the film. <laughs> I don't think so. I, see, I think that it's about the weak-minded and the losers and the, you know, the amoral 
mm. in society, whether it's French, whether it's American. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. And whether it's, you know, Jim Thompson, the killer inside me and Sheriff Luke Ford being um, completely unhinged and cruel and mm. merciless. Or, you know, Jack Carter leaving Alan Armstrong to get the crap kicked out of him, which he knows is going to happen. <laughs> or, you know, finding himself in a situation where through pretty much his own failure as a as a as an uncle or as a or as a father mm. his niece stroke daughter yeah finds herself in an underage porn film and that and that could be anywhere you know that that doesn't you know that's that's not distinctly british you know and those are all things that happen in the novel as well as in the film you know they're about like non-fiction is about the lies we tell ourselves yeah and they and they put characters in front of you and challenge it. So I don't, I don't think there's a kind of national boundary to that element of it. And obviously, you know, the streets are different, the the landscapes are different, and some of the preoccupations are different. As I've said, you know, in France, it's, it can become a lot more political in, yeah. in many ways. Um, and obviously, you've got a, the vast landscape of America, which means that you can sort of go to a small town in, I don't know where, in Texas, and weird things can happen that the rest of the world has no idea about. Well, you can do that in Scunthorpe as well. Yeah, I suppose it's 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 the kind of person who who can judge who can judge their life and their existence on almost like a crapshoot. It's it's there's a there's a bad decision and an awful decision. And I'm gonna yeah. to have to take one of them because to back out would be would somehow be wrong to walk away would be worse yeah i mean it's it, it, it's about the characters and it's about the choices the characters mm. make and yeah. in our fiction they tend to make really bad choices yeah because I, I don't know if you remember i sent you the uh, i did like a a manifesto based on paul schrader's essay on what was film noir and the one mm. that stood out to me the most is that the journey there not the what when you get there is the is the exciting thing about noir yeah so it is all those awful decisions that add up to. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that's what sort of make that's what distinguished certainly at the time he was writing it. What is what distinguished Ted's writing from pretty much every other writer was he wasn't interested in redemption. There are hardly any redeeming characters in a Ted Lewis novel. Nobody is there for a happy ending, um, and I think. That means that the key has to be 
Mm. That you you follow this character because of their journey, because of the decisions they make, because you know potentially what they're up against is a is a worse evil than yeah. they are, but not much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all shades of all shades of dark grey. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the reality is that again, you know, you go back to to Jack's return home to get Carter. He, he might be sitting in bed crying because he's just seen his girl in a film, but that's the sort of film that he's been selling in London on on the streets of Soho for these gangsters that Fletcher broke. Yeah, you know that's why he's crying. He's crying because you know that's his he's carrying that that guilt because that's his job. He's probably sold them the film. Yeah, he's he's implicated in yeah. in the crime that's horrified him. Now, one of the things you suggested when we were talking about. Uh, is is looking at some of the films that sort of lead up to Get Carter that you that you like. Do you want to give a few a few choice films that people might want to look out for that would that that sort of almost not maybe not directly but but you could you could argue plot a route to what is Get Carter. I, I mean, I jotted down a list of I think I've got six or seven okay British films that probably when you look at them you look at the kind of progression of British crime fiction and. British crime films because most of these are books mm. and that was one of the interesting things about writing Ted's story was I ended up spending an absolute fortune on buying out of print paperbacks for most of these films um, so the first one is John Bolting's Bright and Rock mm-hmm. 1947 come on pay up <laughs> so the interesting thing about that is you couldn't have made it before the war even though the book was written in 1938. The censorship of pre-war scripts in terms of what they would and wouldn't allow probably would have meant that film couldn't be made because the censors were terrified of the kind of gangsterism in America at the time. That idea that you could have, you know, razor gangs of, of young thugs and juvenile delinquents in on the streets of London or you know the, the, the racetracks of Brighton simply would have, I'm pretty sure that that film would never have been made um, before the war. So that that's the first one. Second one is um, uh, Jules de Saint's Night in the City. Out. I beg your pardon? Out. What do you mean, this is a public place? Sir's the mold. Move. Well, evidently you don't know who I am. Mr. Christo, don't like club touts hustling suckers in his arena. Get out. Pigs! 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 Them here! Pigs! Come on! Why, that that's Gregorius! Who? Finest wrestler the world's ever known. Uh, which is a great I don't know. It doesn't get as much I don't think it's shown as often as it is perhaps it should be, but as I mean Richard Widmark, he's a he's a one of those actors. Lewis loves those kind of actors like Richard Widmark and Lee Marvin, those sort of um, offbeat kind of 
angry people. Yeah. Um, so that would be my second one. Um, Carol reads the third man. Victims? Don't be melodramatic. Look down there. Would you really feel any pity if one of those dots stopped moving forever? If I offered you 20,000 pounds for every dot that stopped, would you really, old man, tell me to keep my money? Or would you calculate how many dots you could afford to spin? Free of income tax, old man. Free of income tax. The only way you can save money nowadays. A lot of good your money will do you in jail. That jail's in another zone. There's no proof against me. Besides you. Just simply for the atmosphere of it as much as anything else. And I don't know. I mean, I know it's set, it's set in, um, in uh, Vienna, isn't it? But yeah. Is it a British film? I don't know. Does it? You would call Lawrence Arabia a British film, so I think you could... Uh, yeah. I think we could call okay. Third Man a British film. Um, the next one is um, the Robert Hamer film, The Long Memory. Oh, I don't know that one. With John Mills. Again, it's another one of these little sort of... It's, it's one of your talking pictures type films but mm. um i think the novel came out how clean's novel came out in 1951 or something and the film was made in 1953 but it's an incredible that uh, john mills has been out comes out of prison for a crime that he didn't commit a murder that he didn't, that he didn't commit mm. um and he's living on this barge down in gravesend on on the the medway and traveling up to try and find out how he got set up and to find the people that set him up. And you've got this incredible, there's a chase, there's a chase scene along the mud flats near Gravesend and, and Maidstone, which is, you know, there are there are echoes of that years later in the final scene, Check out. Oh, wow. I've just been talking to Fisher. He's got the makings of a good newspaper man, that boy. Fisher oughtn't to be a newspaper man. Not even on this paper. What's troubling the Craig conscience now? That you gave him Fay Driver's address and he passed it on to Davidson. What? Well, he shouldn't have done that. He's got a lot to learn yet, that boy. Oh, what's done's done. It's not as simple as that. People's lives add up to more than a few lines of print for Sunday reading. So, I, I, I love it. It's a great film. John Mills is brilliant at it. He's really, you know, not the kind of cheeky chappy with his, you know, say the suit on in that yeah. film. He's, he's a little bit, a bit, a, a lot earthier and a lot, and a lot kind of. You know, he's a noir character, really. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. Here. Oh, I'll check that out. A couple more. Um, Val Guestville, Hell is a City. DK calling all patrols. Body of a girl reported three miles beyond Crossway's phone box on Doncaster Road. Informant John Hartley waiting at phone. Over. This is K51 calling M2CK. We are in the immediate vicinity. Proceed to the telephone box and advise an arrival. Over. What a morning, isn't it? Robbery, violence, and abduction in Higgins Passage. Now this. Think there's any connection? Could be. They said a girl. Mr. John Hartley. Right. You police. Where is it? Up the road about three miles. Right. Hop in. You show us where until us what happened. It's um, Stanley Baker. Um, again, it's, a, it's based on a novel by um, an ex-copper called Maurice Proctor, and it's set in Manchester. Um, although it's not, although it's not called Manchester. I think it's Grantchester or something in the in the or Grantchester in the in the film, but it's um, Stanley Baker plays this really hacked off copper who's chasing down this bloke um, on the sort of back streets of Manchester. Oh, I'm definitely. I'm, I'm, well, I, you might have told for Max. I mean, I really, really rec- 
recommend it. I, yeah. It's a great film. It's um, I think it's an important film as well, partly because it's Manchester. It's it's not London. It's a, yeah. and it take, takes us out of out of the, the the south, if you like. And Stanley Baker is not a happily married copper. He's a copper who can't get on with his wife, who's finds himself morally compromised, trying to chase down this bloke. And, you know, making the kind of decisions that you were talking about, you know, bad choices and even worse choices. Um, yeah, recommend that. And then um, Joseph Lucy's The Criminal. Nick, Nick, Paddy White, give the devil ball! Nick, Nick, Paddy White, give the devil ball! Nick, Nick, Paddy White, give the devil ball! This kind of money will be out, Johnny. You know, be in business. You'll be having a drink. Have one for me. Chatting a girl. Playing the piano. Boogie woogie. In fact, there's only one thing that worries me about this job. What's the problem, Johnny? How many security guards they really have? It doesn't matter. It does matter. I can split the difference in your mistakes. I'll get the picture. I can... I can feel it. Again, he's standing Baker. In fact, these last, these three have all got standing Baker in, not surprisingly. And um, the criminal was 1960, I think. Um, yeah, so the boats so are both yeah. those films, those last two are 1960. So it's interesting. It's a it's a fairly big watershed moment for cinema because you've got Psycho and uh, Peeping Tom that year, haven't you as well? Yeah, and you, but you've also you've also got the, the that crossover which I was sort of talking about that Ted managed to put into literature. That crossover between social realism and the crime story. Mm. And it's not really surprising. And I'll, 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 I'll tell you the last one on this little list here, which is the Hell Drivers, the Seinfeld film. Yes? I heard you needed ballast drivers. You met Lagoobin, is that right? Yeah. Did he tell you how much he cost us in compensation? He couldn't handle the loads, not at the speeds we wanted. How long have you been driving? 12 years. Any accidents? No. You sure? No, look, I told you. License. Hmm. No endorsements, no convictions for speeding, why not? I guess I was never caught. Name and address of your last employer. I've been out of the country. If you look at, you know, Lucy and Cyanfield, they were both obviously making films in America, fell foul of the um, Un-American Activities Committee and were exiled then to, to Britain and to Europe to make films. And so you've got that American influence that's, that's bringing a kind of harder edge to what, you know, before that, a lot of British films had been capers. If if you had a working class character, that they were going to be a kind of like musical working class character. Mm. They weren't real. They didn't feel real. They didn't convince anybody. But then they were usually a cipher anyway. They weren't there because you know because they were they were sort of a protagonist or they were moving the plot forward. They were kind of an also an afterthought. So I think. Those films, particularly as British films, um, 
are important in that lineage of developing a British noir. Mm. I mean, I wonder, actually, he probably wouldn't, but I wonder what he'd have made of the character of Jack Burton. Because I guess he couldn't, he, he never got to play such an extreme brute because the times wouldn't have allowed it. And obviously, Get Carter was in of itself a kind of watershed. And it's, I think it's really interesting given how much we know, like how the black market functioned during the war. So clearly, working class areas were rife with criminal activity in inverted commas to sustain itself. And obviously, they would have been full of people who are making awful, bad, and cruel decisions to, to, kick, yeah. to, to make their money. Yet, it takes a good 10, 15 years for mainstream fiction to show it, to show that was, uh, you know, like you said, it was only ever like the cheeky, the cheeky entertainer or the. <clears throat> or the yeah, movie. I mean, it's, it's, I, I, you can't think of many before that sort of late 50s, early 60s. No. And there are a handful, as I say, you know, that. Um, the night in the city and the, and the long memory are, are, are early fifties, and they're worth watching for that reason. Is that you, you can see that there's a kind of pushing at the the, the boundaries of, of of the way characters are on on film. And one of the, the heroine of the, the long memory is uh, she's an immigrant, uh, uh, a, a refugee from Europe, and you know there's a there's the acknowledgement that there's actually an underclass. Mm. Or that there is a working class, or there, you know, there are people who are outside of society. Well, I remember. I mean, this isn't even about noir, but I remember reading a, 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 a an article about the impact on Coronation Street, and there was a show in the there was a show in the early early parts of its run where a guy took apart a motorbike in his living room in the two up to, yeah. two, two down, and that received a record number of complaints for just simply yeah. being uncouth. Which is, there's actually, I've realised I've missed one out on that list, which is quite important, which is The Blue Lamp. Okay. Um, 1947, 9, 49, with Dirk Bogart, William Hartnell, um, and Jack Warner as PC Dixon, who would become Dixon of Doc Green. To this man, until today, the crime wave was nothing but a newspaper headline. What stands between the ordinary public and this outbreak of crime? What protection has the man in the street against this armed threat to his life and property? At the Old Bailey, Mr. Justice Finnemore, in passing sentence for a crime of robbery with violence, gave this plain answer. This is perhaps another illustration of the disaster caused by insufficient numbers of police. I have no doubt that one of the best preventives of crime is the regular uniform police officer on the beat. Veterans like George Dixon, with 25 years' service. Now Police Constable 693 attached to Paddington Green. Excuse me, officer. Can you direct me to Paddington Station? Yes, sir. Straight across the green, turn left over the Iron Bridge, and you're there. Thank you very much. Which is significant because that's the first time a police officer has ever been allowed to be shot in a British film. What, the Blue Lamp is? Yeah. Oh, wow. Before that, you couldn't kill a copper on a film. That's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's hard to imagine that being significant, but obviously it had to have happened for the first time once. Totally. Yeah. Can you imagine what a film-going film audience, you know, whenever sitting in the cinema would have made where you've got this... And if you watch that film, you know, he's a really sympathetic character, really sympathetic. Mm. And that's and that's where that, that... What I was talking about, that sort of... That fear of 
of gangsterism mm. that was there before the war, which meant films like that couldn't be made. And that's that's who Dirk Bogart is. You know, he's a younger man then, and you know, he, he epitomizes that sort of, you know, this is how terrible it could become if you've got gun toting, you know, juvenile delinquents shooting police officers on the streets of London. Terrifying thought, a terrifying thought. Let's remind people then, uh, Getting Carter, Ted Lewis and the Birth of Brit Noir is out now through, is it through No Exit, isn't it? Yeah. It is No Exit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, well, before before you go, is there anything, you're, anything new you're up to? Any, anything you can talk about that you want to let us... Let's no, at the moment, I'm sort of writing. Um, got a couple of things that are out with publishers at the moment, which I'm waiting to hear back about. Um, but just, you know, making sure as many people find out about Ted Lewis as possible at the moment. and writing my own stuff and seeing what happens. Well, the, the, the Getting out has an excellent job of it because I certainly feel like I've discovered him without having a clue. And that's some. And I'm someone, you know, I've seen Get Carter 20 plus times and I feel ashamed that I hadn't really paid attention to. I'd focused so much on, because by the time I get around to watching it, it's been out 20 years, you know, so yeah. it's always been a Michael Caine film and everything else is, you know, and it's that idea of it being in Newcastle and that's, that's got all your attention. And, he stay, and I think it stays with him. You, you kind of watch, I don't know, you, you watch a film like Mona Lisa, mm. Neil Jordan's film, and you see Michael Caine playing a sleazy pornography, pornography gangster, and you just think, that's the bloke that Jack Carter could have become. Well, my, I'm friends, I'm friends, I work with the one of the producers of Harry Brown. Yeah. And obviously they cast Michael Caine in the lead. And yeah. there was that idea that, you know, you could, if you, you know, and I know the story doesn't tell that story, but in a, in a sense of Michael Caine's career, you could see how that's yeah. a continuation of characters he's played. You know? uh, and, I, and I think that's the thing, isn't it? You, I can't think of another, now Get Carter's 50 this year. Yeah, amazing. I can't think of an equivalent British crime or gangster film that still resonates in the way that does other than The Long Good Friday. And those two films stand as sort of pillars at either end of the 1970s. Yeah, because it's interesting. Because it's interesting because in the same year, The Reckoning comes out with uh, Nicole Williamson. And I was surprised to learn about that film recently, not that it even sort of got any of the recognition. And, you know, Nicole Williamson is a brilliant actor. Absolutely fantastic, yeah. And, you know, there's a man goes back, goes to an Irishman, goes back to Liverpool to sort out a, you know, a, a wrong yeah. to the family and everything. So that the, you know, story wise, it's a there's a there's certainly an echo and a similarity. But one captured the British British public's imagination, and one didn't. And you know, within I think within about two months of Jack Carter. Um, being released in 1971, um, the Richard Burton film Villain was released as well. And so there was a little kind of pocket of filmmakers who had obviously, you know, it, that's what was happening. That's what was in the news. Those kind of Richardsons and McRae's and they're, they're kind of, those criminal empires were being exposed for what they were. So, you know, the, at, at last you had a, you had a, a, a homegrown story that, that that could find its way onto onto the screen. And you also had a kind of dearth of actors who'd who'd sort of cut their cut, 
you know, cut, cut their chops in the 60s and were ready for these yeah. more challenging roles yeah. in more challenging films, as it were. I mean, I've, I've watched it. I've watched it on a on a film print, on a 35 mil film print, um, a couple of times. Get Carter, and I, I don't. I don't know. It's this controversial. I don't think Michael Caine has ever been better. It's, it, it's a good argument to say that he hasn't. I don't know. I'm sure he would hope he has because there's a lot of action. Yeah, and I'm, you know, I'm sure he would. But I, I kind of I've watched it and I just think, you know, he's such a good performer. Yeah, it's so solid, and he's got a supporting cast who are well capable of coming up against him. Ian Hendry and John Osborne. Uh, you know, they are not they're not lightweight actors in their own right. Mm. No, I mean, and for me. Some of the best moments in the film are where there's sort of the least happening. So, but it's all about the mood. It's uh, where he's where he goes into the bar and just orders half a pint. And he just sat at the bar, sensing yeah. that all eyes are on him. It's such a and it's and that's not an easy thing. You know, I'm I'm no actor, but I can imagine it's quite hard to play being a bit paranoid. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but it but it, you can you feel watching that scene that he feels he's got the whole eyes on him for the bar. It's. Uh, no, I, I agree. It's a phenomenal performance, and it runs through. And it's there. It's there in Lewis's novel. I mean, you know, that's Lewis knew those people mm. to what extent. You know, is is open to conjecture, mm. but he definitely hung out in that part of London at that time, in the late sixties, where they were around. Michael Caine knew them, you know, to to a certain extent, and so they were kind of coming from a point of of experience and of knowledge and of, right, this is what we're doing. So I think when, when they came together with Michael Caine, Lewis's story, Mike Hodges as a, as a feature film director with form for doing crime drama, and Michael Klinger as a producer who'd got the MGM money for mm. a short period, an independent producer who'd come from that world himself. It's you know that's and I guess you'd have to say uh, Wolfgang Szyszczyk's cinematography, which is awesome mm. in genuine sense of the word, and you know it's that's why it works. That cast, that writing, those people involved. Well, look, brilliant. Thank you for uh, for pulling the pulling the curtain back on uh, on Ted Lewis to let us have a look. It's a fantastic read. I recommend it to anyone with an interest in. And around Get Carter and British noir fiction, it's a, uh, it's excellent, and and also as a kind of potted history of popular culture. I mean, just as a, we don't have to talk about, it, but just as an aside, you know, even like the jazz scene of of you know Yorkshire Numberside is like that's not something yeah. I, I was familiar with, but that that seemed like a gateway to where he ended up, you know. So, and that's a mo- a lot of people can you can relate to that. That's that that discovery of this otherness that exists outside your street. And it doesn't have you have to go a million miles for it, and that that seemed really that, that was a, a necessary part of the tale, and it was an interesting insight because you, you know, as a kind of grown up around Manchester, living in London for twenty years, going to university in Birmingham, I kind of have a perception of other parts of Britain, which is not that not that culturally yeah. dense. But the idea that there was this ripe um, jazz scene, you know, it was a real surprise. So you know, those kind of things are it's it's always. Social history of Britain is always much better when it's pointed at specific areas, and and uh, and I applaud you for that. 
So just because we say thank you very much for giving your time on the Britflix podcast. That's great. You're welcome. The wife says that the Fletcher sent you. What's so bloody important he couldn't wait until the morning? <laughs> Listen, I'm not in the mood for playing silly buggers. I made a mistake. What? I made a mistake. What about? Never mind. It's not business. See you. Listen, I don't like it when some tough nut comes pushing his way in and out of my house in the middle of the night. Bloody well tell me who sent you. You're a big man, but you're in bad shape. With me, it's a full-time job. Now behave yourself. Good night, Mrs. Bramber. How to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.